This is the Improved Photography Podcast, episode number 209. Hey guys, welcome back to the Improved Photography Podcast. This is where we're going to sit around our digital campfire and nerd out about photography for a while. <laughs> and to help me around our digital campfire, we have Brent and we also have Stephen Nolly. Thanks for coming on, guys. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So it's um, it has been snowpocalypse still here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, mm-hmm. I spent this past week uh, out chasing waterfalls that were frozen and and uh, the, the amazing winter wonderland that is the Pacific Northwest right now. What have you guys been shooting lately? I got to Palouse Falls and did the same kind of thing. And it was fantastic with the huge ice um, mound that was forming at the base of the falls. Got it, was able to climb that and then got pelted with a bunch of ice uh, because the wind shifted and all that, well, not all that water, but a lot of that water that was falling down came pretty much right on me and my mm-hmm. camera. And I still had a blast. It was awesome. Oh, gosh. Wow. That's cool. Wow. Uh, I've been shooting uh, lifestyle photography in, uh, I'm, I'm shooting for a restaurant group. So it's a lot of uh, nighttime indoor lifestyle stuff. So it's really high ISO. And so I've been trying to balance uh, how high can I can I really pump the ISO and how much how much noise can I remove before completely destroying uh, these images? But uh, it's 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 a it's a challenge really shooting in dark bars and yeah. they get so dark. You're experimenting yeah. not only with high ISOs but really slow <laughs> shutter speeds as well. Yeah, yeah. no yeah. Ca- yeah, no definitely. caffeine allowed at those types of shoots <laughs> when when you're looking for those state those uh, sharp images. So yeah. we have quite a few different things that we're going to talk about today, as well as some listener questions. So the first thing that we were going to talk about tonight is, you know, it's it's a new year. It's time for new gear and getting some of the old gear out the door. Um, I don't know if you guys do this, but every year about this time, I start looking at my office area and I'm thinking, man, I don't use half of the junk that I have on my shelves. Like I, I really acquire too much stuff and it's time to get rid of some. So every year about this time, I sell off my old gear. And this year I sold off my 28 to 70 L. I sold off my 16 to 35 version two. Um, which was really my workhorse for a long time, but I replaced that with the version three. Um, I also sold off some audio gear and it's been really nice to get some of that stuff out the door because now I have a little bit of money to play with and I can (laughs) buy something new. And that new thing that I bought was actually, I, I have a Mavic pro on the way. Um, yeah, so I, those are so cool. I know. And so the reason I I also sold off my phantom four along Mm. with like all of my accessories and my fancy case and everything. And, and the reason that I, I, I wanted to get this Mavic is because I have this phantom pro and I love flying it. I love using it, but I never take it out because it's just so big. You know, half of the places that I'm going to, I, I, I need to walk into, I need to hike into. And the last thing I'm going to do is take that big 30 pound Pelican case up the trail with me. And I don't want to be like, do, okay, am I doing photography with my DSLR or am I doing drone work with my drone? And so Mm -hmm. I got this Mavic pro because it's going to be small enough. I can just throw it in my camera bag and I'll actually use it. So I'm really excited about that. 
it was kind of heart wrenching to put my drone up for sale, but I knew that I was going to be replacing it. It's just a matter of like, when are these Mavics going to continue to ship? Because right now they're all sold out and it's just back order. Um, Oh, how long is the back order? Um, well they said like four to six weeks, I believe. I think that's just kind of a blanket statement, meaning that they right. don't really know because it's first come yeah. first serve. And I have no idea how far down that list I am. Brent, have you been, have you sold off any gear or anything lately? I did have some gear uh, listed for sale and I have a huge announcement that I'm anticipating making here. And that is I'm adding some Nikon gear to the inventory. Oh, wow. That's and a so that is a huge step forward for my business, uh, Brent Twins Lenses, and um, starting off with uh, two lenses, the um, for sure, and I have a little extra here going on that I'll get to in a moment. But I did a survey on the uh, on the Facebook group, and by far the most popular request was this new seventy to two hundred for Nikon. Uh, that looks like a really sweet lens. And then also the um, 200 to 500 F5.6. Oh, nice. So I'm going to start with those. And then um, a third lens that I really want to do is the new uh, 105 uh, F1.4. Mm-hmm. And I've got a little promo going on right now that anybody can take advantage of. But what that involves is kind of sort of like a little mini uh, crowdfunding type thing, if you want to look at it that way. What I'm looking at doing is starting now, until February 15, I'm going to sell gift cards on the website as kind of like a pre-purchase type item. And you can get it for 20% off with a certain code. That's GC promo for gift card promo. So you're going to get 20% off. So if you wanted to buy a $100 gift card, you'd buy it for 80 bucks. And then that wow. gift card is good uh, for any rental on the site. And if you've not yet used the improve discount code when you actually do your rental, you should use that and you'll get another 15% off. So it's like a super crazy deal that I'm trying to question my sanity a little bit here with how many discounts I'm <laughs> doing. Crazy. But I want to get uh, some Nikon gear going and I want to get some excitement b- behind it. And I figured, you know, this might be a good way to do it. So my plan is pending shipping and all that stuff like you're dealing with your Maverick. So your Mavic. So I kind of have to, you know, toss that out there. But my plan is that on February 16, I'll add these items to the inventory. And you can then rent them, uh, reserve them, and they'll start shipping on the 28th. So, or I should say delivery by the 28th. So if you want to have something for March, you want to have something for whenever, you can get it uh, starting on February 16 is the goal. And then um, with these gift cards sales, I have on my uh, website, and I've got the link in the show notes, uh, I've got on my website a blog post that details which gear, as I have certain sales number levels of those gift card sales, mm-hmm. uh, which additional lenses I'll be adding. So I'm going through that actually as we speak, so I don't have all of that figured out, but I can tell you the Nikon 105 F1.4 is number one on that list. And then I've got a couple others that are going to be coming through as well. That's a pretty big deal because adding a new camera system, that's not a cheap thing <laughs> for a business like like you're running. That's... That's a big deal. It's a absolute magnitude of scalability. Yeah, yes. it is. And I'm, I've just been wanting to do it for so long and I've decided it's finally time to make it happen. So here we are making it happen and just excited to do it. I was thinking of waiting until uh, the retreat in Phoenix to announce it there, but I was like, you know, why would I do that? I really need to do it now. So I'm going to go ahead and do it now. Congratulations, right now. Brent. 
Yeah, thank you. How about you, Stephen? Have you been selling anything or or doing <laughs> you know any spring cleaning? I, I, <laughs> I'm I'm so terrible about getting rid of old gear. I, I I there are things that I know they're they're in my bag and I should get rid of them. I have a I have a Canon 60D that has just been it was it was the first camera that I started getting paid to shoot on, mm-hmm. and it's it's been my second camera ever since. You know, and having a second camera is important, but. I can't. I have such a hard time. I mean, I've I've listed it a couple of times at way too high a price because I don't think I really wanted to sell it. Yeah. Um, but I know I should. Uh, you know, it's it's several generations old now, uh, but it still does everything I need it to do. It's got Magic Lantern on it, and and I love that camera. But I know in my heart of hearts that is a piece that uh, that needs to be sold. It needs to it needs to go to someone else and and find a new owner that it can bring new mm-hmm. joy to because I literally have not done one shutter click with that thing in probably the last year. And so that's probably a good sign that um it's there, there's someone else that can make better use of that camera right. than me. I hope so. that I'm not alone in this, but it is mm. so easy to just ignore getting rid of the old gear because i just want yeah. to keep it all you know like oh you, i absolutely do <laughs> you, you get it you get attached to it you got all these sentimental feelings about your old gear and it's just so much easier to just like well i'll sell that next month or oh you know and then you end up with just a whole bunch of gear collecting dust that never gets used i think you know, if it's really old gear, we should just donate it, you know, find somebody that's an up, up and coming photographer that ha- has like no gear, but they're really interested in photography. Take that mm-hmm. really old camera body, put it in their hands and and it's going to be, you know, the most amazing gift in the world to them. Um, yeah. Or it can just sit on our shelves and collect dust, you know, hashtag right. first world problems. <laughs> we, <laughs> right. we have more gear than we can possibly use and we're too selfish to get rid of it. <laughs> That's it's terrible, but it's true. And I'm, I'm so guilty of that. Yeah. I mean, especially if you have, if you have an older DSLR, I mean, I, I gave away my, my very first camera, which was a Nikon D40. Um, I gave that away a couple of years ago. And for someone who's coming from an iPhone or just a, a point and shoot, just getting their hands on any DSLR that they can actually manipulate the aperture and the shutter speed and they can know, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a huge step up for them. So it was, it was an older camera for me and it wasn't, wasn't getting much use, but for someone who's just getting started in photography, that will let them really get their feet wet. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. So Brent, you have more news. Like, I feel like this is kind of like the the (laughs) Brent Brent news hour. So, (laughs) so this is the Brent background music. Yeah, exactly. There, Thank you. Love it. (laughs) Nice. So the other thing that's happening in our world is uh, the one and only Brian McGuckin and myself are teaming up for another podcast. It, It will focus on travel photography. And the joy of travel, destinations, that kind of a thing. It'll be somewhat of a multi-format. We'll do interviews with people who are uh, really good in their areas uh, or destinations that we're looking at. But we'll also be doing some uh, travel logs as well for the individual things that we do. So what we're looking for is to have our first recording at the retreat in Phoenix uh, as a live recording. This is all in the planning stage. So because I'm talking about it doesn't necessarily mean it's absolutely going to happen, but pretty much, you know, you, once you might just be jinxing it really hard, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, that would just really stink. 
but Brian will be there in Phoenix. Uh, certainly, I'll be there, and uh, we're we've got uh, Jim on board with it, and it's gonna be um, it's gonna be a hoot to get this thing launched. So we're looking at uh, we'll do about uh, one show every two weeks until July, and then we hope to go weekly at that time. And the magic sauce on that is we're both teachers, and uh, suddenly July our schedules open up. So right. um, we're going to see what we can do to uh, make that happen. We have uh, ideas knocking around for a name, but we're still a little bit in limbo, a little bit in flux with that. So I'm not ready to announce a name idea yet. But yeah, a new podcast dedicated to travel. That's awesome. Love it. I'm That's ca- going to be fantastic. I'm, I'm kind of fond to travel. That's awesome. That's a oh, great idea. I, for I know show. you are. Yeah, absolutely. I have been just, I don't know. I've been traveling since, you know, ever. And um went to Europe uh, for the first time when I was 16 and uh, kind of sort of, at least in my mind, a lot of times I'm an armchair traveler, but uh, in my mind, never look back. Just love to go experience new cultures and hopefully we can experience some of that through a podcast uh, dedicated to travel photography. If I can plant a seed, an idea yeah. seed, something that you of need course. to do is yes. just like in the field recordings, you know, like, yeah you know, recorded from a coffee shop in Paris or wherever, you know, like, oh, wait, right, right. And, absolutely. And do as many like in the field recordings as you can possibly manage. I think that'd be cool. That's, that's kind of part of the travel log idea that we have, uh, thinking about. And as a family, we're looking at doing some traveling, more traveling. We have some other things going on and we're going to do, be doing more traveling as a family. So, Finding some of these off the beaten path places just here in the U.S. is certainly big on my on my radar for these kinds of things. But also, you know, talking to someone who's been to Patagonia, who's been to South Georgia Island, whatever that, you know, that might be any of those big, awesome places for sure. But it'll just be a nice variety of of little known places that are just still really cool. It'll be about the experience and it'll be about inspiring people to get out and travel with their own cameras. That's very cool. That's very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. So another thing that I wanted to talk about is I wanted to talk about uh, some compositional kind of ideas, something that we can actually kind of take away from this episode and maybe apply towards our own photography. So one of the things that I'm constantly talking to people about, whether I'm doing my Skype sessions or at a workshop or something, is the importance of drawing the eye in your photo. Like it's, it's one of those terms that just kind of gets loosely thrown out. Like, you know, the eye really leads through the photo and, and I wanted to kind of narrow down, like, how do you actually do that? What are the actual things that you're doing in your photo to draw the eye to your subject? That there's several different things that you can do in your photo that will very much guide the eye. The first and probably most obvious thing that you can do in a, in a shot is to make the subject of your photo, the main subject of your photo, be the brightest thing in your shot because the eye is going to always be drawn to areas of highlights and the brightest parts. That's just, you know, fundamentally how our eyes work. It goes to the brightest part of a photo. And so like, for example, like if I'm doing a big environmental portrait and I'm lighting them and my couple is the brightest thing in the photo, I go straight to them. It's just boom. It's very simple. Goes straight to it. So if you can manage to make your subject the brightest part of your photo, that that's always a win. That's a that's a check mark. You know, that photo is going to work. Another thing that you can do is sharpness. So let for example, if you're taking a portrait 
and you're using that really shallow depth of field, the reason that the eye goes straight to the person and not that out of focus background is because all the texture and all the sharpness is on your subject. So there's not really a whole lot of other stuff to look at that is sharp. So boom, that's why that's why shallow depth of field portraits work so well is because it's very clear what your subject is. So sharpness and texture and detail, that's another way to draw the eye. You can do that in landscape photography as well just by being selective about where you're adding your sharpness rather than just sharpening your whole photo, a whole bunch, mm. you know, be very selective about what you're sharpening. Make sure that the areas that you're sharpening are where you want your, the eye to go to, because that, that really is going to draw the eye. Um, so yeah, sharpness. Another thing that I can think of is simplicity. You know, there's the whole like minimalistic photo where you have, a snow scene and a tree and uh, the only thing in your shot is the tree. And the reason that that is such a classic successful photo is because, well, there really are no other distractions to take away from that tree. So the eye knows exactly what the subject is, you know, and knows right where to go. And that, that always works, you know, and the same is true. Like when you're taking a big, big landscape, if you're including too many distracting elements, you know, like various rocks or, or whatever things on the edges of your frame, those things are going to do nothing but distract the person looking at the photo from what the main story or the main subject of the, of the photo is. So eliminating those things that are not helping the photo and not helping the story you're trying to tell with that photo that's always going to help as well. Do you guys have any other ideas and stuff as far as ways to draw the eye through a shot? I would say looking for any kind of, I, I look for vertical lines a lot. If you have a lot of vertical lines, they tend to, um, you know, we talk about leading lines a lot, vertical lines and having negative space. Vertical lines is a way of, uh, of framing negative space is something that I, um, I like to use a lot because vertical lines will close off the eye uh, just uh, uh, structurally. You start to you look at them as 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 borders. Mm -hmm. And so if you have some vertical lines and there's some negative space between there, um, whatever your subject is, if you can get it into that negative space, it's a fantastic way of framing the actual photo. Absolutely. Um, Another thing that I've noticed that really draws the eye is uh, there's there's an old story about some some uh, cinematographer was talking to Steven Spielberg early on in his career and he, Steven Spielberg wanted a job and he's like all right can can you can you see where the the horizon is he's like all right yeah he's like yeah and he just points right in the middle of the of the frame he's like all right you never want the horizon right in the middle put it in the top or put it in the bottom <laughs> and that seems like such a ridiculous rule but I've noticed that if you put your horizon uh, at the top of your frame or at the bottom, your bottom, bottom third or top third, uh, you tend to get more interesting compositions. Yeah. Um, so that's something that I, that I found, uh, you know, because naturally when we look out, we, we look out and we see the horizon and our natural tendency is to, to kind of level ourselves on the horizon. That's kind of where we, where we find our ground zero. Um, but if you can change your framing, so you're looking at the foreground in front of that or looking at the sky above, you'll, you'll get something that, that is a little bit more interesting looking at least. Yeah. And, and I think the reason that that works is because, for example, if you put the horizon on the top third, that tells the viewer that the story of the photo is in the bottom third because we're right. including more of the more of the landscape, more of the area below the horizon. But if that horizon line is very low in the frame, 
suddenly it tells the viewer, oh, well, the main subject must be up in the sky. It must be the sky. Like if you have a rainbow, you're not going to put it on the top third. You're (laughs) going to put it on the bottom third. And it's just like one of those subconscious things. It's amazing how much of this is subconscious and it stems from somewhere. Do you have any other words of wisdom, Brent? One thing that I always have a problem with until I'm taking it out of the subconscious, like you're saying, to help enhance that simplicity, to help enhance some of these other items. Watch those borders because it's so easy to have something sneak in on the border, uh, on the very edge of your frame. And so I'm almost always uh, looking very intently at the edge of the frame. And sometimes I'll admit, I actually forget about getting the camera level or whatever the case is for the first couple of shots because I'm so intent. Oh, I got to watch those borders, make sure nothing is coming in that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. So that would be the the takeaway I guess I'd go with um, on that. But another thing that I always like to to look at too is sometimes compositionally, I might have one of the best pictures ever, but it just doesn't match what I saw and felt at the time. And so that's where we have to sharpen our skills in post-production to really help bring it together. Yep. And that camera does a really fantastic job of recording the data, but it doesn't do a fantastic job of interpreting the data. And so that's our job in post-production is to interpret it and either learn a couple of skills in Photoshop or Lightroom, do some selective sharpening, do some selective brightening and darkening. We call it dodging and burning. Uh, So learning some of those skills, subtlety, I believe, is key there but that can really help bring an image to life as well. Yeah. You can have the most technically correct photo in the world, but if it doesn't have mood and emotion, it just feels sterile and flat. That's why I love the work of Enrico Fassati. Not only because I love saying his name, but because, (laughs) but because his images are just so (coughs) jam packed with mood, lots of interesting places for the eye to go. Aaron Bobnick is another one uh, that's spelled B-A-B-N-I-K. She is really, really excellent at dodging and burning and directing the eye. So check out those two people, uh, Enrico for mood and Aaron Bobnick for dodging and burning and directing the eye. And those are great, great examples. So, Stephen, you wanted to talk a little bit about film emulsions in Sony cameras. One of the things that I love about Fuji cameras is that there are so many uh, uh, film uh, simulations that are built right into right into the camera. You've got Acros, which is absolutely gorgeous, and the Provia and the Velvia and the Astia. And if anyone's ever shot with a Fuji camera, you know what I'm talking about. It just it, they look great straight out of camera. Um, I shoot primarily with a Sony camera. I have a Sony A7R2, and uh, one of the features that um, I found that a lot of video shooters are using, uh, but the photo shooters aren't using as much, is the picture profile setting. Um, now, a lot of the, the photographers probably know the creative styles, and there are some JPEG they're JPEG rendering uh, uh, creative styles that you can put in there. Some of them are really gimmicky. They're like toy camera or vintage or retro, and the black and white modes aren't, aren't too bad. But if you go into the picture profile settings, uh, depending on what camera you have, you'll have seven to nine um, custom picture profile settings that you can set up any way you want. Um, I have found that using each one of these picture profile settings, I like to set them up uh, the same way I would set up a different type of film stock. Now, the unique thing about the picture profile settings is you there, there are a lot of there are a lot of sliders that go left and right. And there are a lot of settings you can manipulate and they have really weird and, and uh, kind of technically um, alienating sounding names like 
gamma and black gamma and cine and uh and, and things like that but all they really are it's a way for you to adjust the curves level and the colors levels uh straight in camera so what this means is you'll have a custom curve profile that you can put in camera and also adjust the way the camera is rendering uh the different colors in the jpeg mode um so how are you going to use this? How, how does this affect me? Because most people are taught to just, just shoot in raw and then figure it out later. Um, obviously, you can always do that. But I think you're missing out on one of the one of the great things about, about these camera systems is the, the JPEG rendering engines have gotten so much better in the last couple of years. Um, as a photographer, one of the things I really enjoy doing is I like to take pictures. Uh, the frustrating thing is I find myself behind the computer more than I would like in order to get these pictures the way I want them to look. So if I can get the, ca the the camera to do a little bit more of the heavy lifting and get the picture looking like I kind of wanted to in camera, that's that's a huge <laughs> load off my mind. And I'm spending more time shooting and less time uh, hunched over my computer screen. Um, <laughs> so I am and, and hopefully we can put it in the show notes here. Here's a blog post that I wrote on my personal blog. Um, it's about getting uh, some custom film emulations. One of them that I put in there is the uh, the Triax film look. Uh, it, it's a it's a little bit more contrasty. One of the nice things that you can do when you're when you're setting these levels up, film nowadays at least tends to have a very different response curve than digital sensors do. Um, one of the things you might notice is the highlights. Uh, might roll off a little bit softer, but they might not capture as 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 much on the highlight on the high end. Um, the shadows on the other end might start a little bit higher off for some of these uh, different film emulations. Like I know that the the Ilford levels have very very soft blacks; they're not really crushed. Um, so one of the things that you can do is you can choose exactly where your black level is. And when I say black level, that means where your camera determines mm -hmm. the lowest, darkest point is. So nothing is going to go belong, uh, below that point. So you can kind of get some creamy-looking, matte-looking blacks and some soft shadows that that have uh, a little bit more texture in them. And uh, it's a great way to just uh, put some put some put some new film into your digital camera, and you're not you're not stuck with just the uh, the the portrait or the uh, the standard or the vivid. Uh, styles that are that are preloaded into your camera a thing that i almost feel guilty about admitting <laughs> is mm. because there's times when i feel like i have a hard time making my photo look as good as the camera's jpegs do and the main time yeah. the main time <laughs> i've ran into this is in sports photography like i when i first got my 5d4 uh, uh -huh. the, the raw, the raw converter for Lightroom, it wasn't out yet. So I, I wasn't yeah. able to shoot in raw yet and have Lightroom recognize it. And for that reason, I was shooting in a lot of JPEG. The noise reduction in the JPEG files were just so much better than I was ever able to really do in Lightroom. Um, really? I was like, when I was first testing it, I was shooting at like ISO 20,000, ISO 32,000. And just wow. really testing the upper end of it. And they were wow. coming back just so creamy and good. And then wow. when I was finally able to open those raw files, I was like, whoa, that's, yeah. that's not even close to what I was seeing in the JPEGs. And then, you know, I was, and then I would try to do everything that I knew to do. And it just, I couldn't ever quite get my raws in those conditions to look as good mm. as the JPEGs did. It was one of those deep, dirty, dark secrets. I didn't want to tell people <laughs> that Canon, 
Canon JPEGs look better than a Nick Page edited photo, but they were. And, and so, and yeah, and there's, I can totally get like the reason for just kind of, you know, picking a really creative profile like you are and just being create more creative with the photography side of things rather than having so much stress later on when you're post-processing. But at the same time, like that's, I would say that's definitely a situation for when you're, you know, being creative and you're having fun. It's, yeah. it's a little bit scary to do that if you're shooting a professional gig. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know. Gosh, like it, I, I would at the very most do, do raw plus JPEG. Yeah, if, it's a, if it's a, if it's a pay, if it's a paid gig, cause um, as much as I trust what I'm getting in camera, I want to have something to back that up. I want to make sure that I have the option to change my mind uh, later if, if I can. Right. Um, but let me ask you this. So did you ever, when, when you first got the, uh, the 5D4, did you ever try playing with it with the Canon software, the Canon uh, mm-hmm. desktop software? I did. And I have to uh-huh. say that that is some of the worst software ever created by anybody <laughs> the, the, the proprietary it's, it's software terrible, yeah. is the most ridiculous it's like you know I, it looks like it was meant to be run in dos you know it's just <laughs> really really bad uh-huh um they should just not do that anymore i know <laughs> this is what i they i i've talked to some of the the designers and they were telling me that you know because i was we were looking at some files side by side this is when the five dsr just came out and they recommended opening everything through the Canon software. Cause they said they have their, they, they know the secrets to the sauce and there's yeah. some proprietary stuff that you can't get in Adobe. Um, and they got some gorgeous looking stuff out of the camera, but that interface is so clunky and slow. I can't actually imagine using that as my primary interface to get, to get photos out of the camera. Um, yeah. But I'm curious to wonder, I mean, I'm sure that, the, you know, that I know that there's some noise reduction stuff that only their proprietary software will, will, will do that. You can't actually access through Lightroom and stuff like that. But <clears throat> I, I, I wish that you could get that quality of pictures through uh through a third party, third party software. You know, ha- having seen their JPEGs, I would mm-hmm. be willing to, I would be willing to agree that, yeah, there might be some noise reduction stuff that the, that the Canon software is capable of that Adobe is mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Anything other than that, I'm like, oh, it's just worthless. It, it, yeah. It's, it's not worth creating a whole new workflow around because it, exactly. it, it doesn't work. It doesn't. Yeah. Work. Learning yeah. a completely different set of <laughs> programs. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So we had some listener questions come in. The first one comes from BJ Stockton, who, who came to Oregon Coast Workshop with Majid and I this last time. And he says, do you have any good tips for post-processing snow so it doesn't look blue or gray? What do you got, Brent? Mm-hmm. Well, blue or gray, I guess um, I would think if we're going too far in the blue or too far in the neutral, uh, maybe that's what he's kind of thinking of, because let's face it, it's snow. If it's gray, you're probably just too dark on your exposure. Uh, I guess that's what what I'm going to assume with that. Uh, Being that it's white, uh, we need to add at least a one-stop exposure compensation if you're using an auto mode. If you're using a manual mode, just watch that little dot on um, on your meter. Mm-hmm. And set it to one stop overexpose, and that'll help it be bright. Uh, but definitely go, don't go too far. What I found, um, I just spent you know this last Sunday going down to the depths of the frozen abyss that is or was uh, Plus Falls. Uh, now that we've warmed up, I'm sure those things are icebergs now, just floating in that pool. But everything that I was getting there, 
uh, as I was post-processing, I, I realized that was almost too much on the on the overexposure. Uh, I certainly wasn't blowing anything out, but I was I was a little too far on some of the exposures, and I was like, oh, pull it back a little bit so we can still see some of that detail, and uh, watch your white balance uh, because that um, that can certainly set you off if you're. It may still, you know, you might think it looks right for some reason on screen, but go ahead and check that white balance tool and see what happens to bring it into yeah. to neutral balancing because then maybe you're starting off at a better point. Uh, but we also had some greenish colors coming through in the ice, and I don't know why, but we also had some yellowish colors coming through in the ice. <laughs> but they were very large spots in the water, so I'm pretty sure uh, it wasn't just the yellow with, snow thing. It wasn't the yellow snow thing. Yeah, just don't eat it, Brent. Just don't eat those <laughs> no, icicles. We, we we stayed clear of that. But the subtle green hues that were coming through when I saw those in Lightroom, I was just like mega little happy dance because i was like that is so cool i mm-hmm. uh, just i just loved it and uh still it, it's surrounded a little bit by that by the whites a little bit by the the subtle blue colors but you can get some of these other subtle colors coming through too when it comes to pro- post-processing snow uh one there <laughs> i have a few things that i like to do first of all like a lot of times if i'm shooting a big landscape maybe a sunset landscape with snow in the foreground you have to be really careful about contrast because contrast Mm -hmm. is going to be what um, oversaturates that snow. So you want to make sure that you're adding contrast locally. So Mm -hmm. for example, in Photoshop, I'll have one exposure, one frame for my sky where I'm adding tons of contrast and um, maybe a little saturation. And then my foreground, I'm kind of being very cautious about adding contrast. That way that snow doesn't become oversaturated with those blues from being in the shadows. The other thing is that snow reflects color. So if you have a color cast in your sky, that snow is going to reflect that. And that's a good thing because that's going to be adding mood and feeling to your shot. You just want to make sure that you're not overdoing it by adding a bunch of saturation when you're adding your contrast. Another thing that I like to do is to really bring out the textures in the snow. You don't really want to do that through just like a massive amount of clarity or contrast because then you're going to get the really crunchy, dingy snow. What I like to do is use one of the Nick Color Effects Pro plugins. And I like to use either Detail Extractor and kind of extract some of those textures and details in the snow. That way you're getting that really fine, um, uh, whatever sparkly snow. And then, mm-hmm. and then in the Viveza or Viveza or whatever, that's however that's pronounced in, in Nick color effects, pro there's a, it's a sharpening section where you can add some structure and that, that slider is magic for snow as well. That way you can, um, have, Nice, bright, and not underexposed snow, but still maintain the textures and the details. And that's what one of the things that I've been doing a lot in my snow shots, as well as like if I do have that color cast that should be reflecting on that snow and it's not really showing up, I'll actually just <laughs> create a dodge burn layer and add that later on. Um, just a layer set to soft light, and then I'll just very carefully paint that into the highlights on the snow. Yeah, that's a good technique. I I like that technique in Photoshop too. Definitely good one there. 
Uh, next question is from Sarah Scully. She says, I have a question yesterday about the best sites for uploading lots of images for sale. I'm shooting for our swim team and I end up with 300 plus images that uh, from each meet. Uh, we're going to sell the download loads as part payment for me and part fundraiser for the team. What input do you guys have as far as photo hosting sites to sell images like that? Uh, do you do either one of you guys have an opinion on that? I used to, a lot of my work right now is, is client work with um, businesses and corporations. But when I was doing um, individual clients, I used to use shoot proof and they would, uh, I have, gosh, I haven't used them in at least six months, but uh, they would give you your own page that you could then, uh, you could then reroute as a sub page of your website. So it would look like it's, they could go to your website, log in and just see their gallery. Um, and then they have different options for uh, either downloading or printing. One of the things I really liked about them was that you could um, you could choose what printing house their their photos would print through, and you could decide what price they would pay for each one. And you could decide whether they could download if they're buying a print, whether they could download the JPEG for free or whether it's going to charge for the JPEG. Um, and it was and they took care of all the payments. Also, um, it was a uh, it was a really really handy thing. I think they also, if I remember correctly, you could print through Pro DPI, which I found yeah. to be uh, very, very attractive as an option. Mm -hmm. Both SmugMug and Zenfolio will do very similar things. I think it's uh -huh. definitely a less a less professional looking presentation than a shoot proof. Like, I love the uh -huh. fact that you can embed shoot proof as one of your pages onto your right, website. Yeah. That's that's really cool, and I imagine you're able to customize it pretty well as well, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean you can you can name the gallery, you can you can change the layout so you can really you can really control their experience so yeah. that it feels like they're going to your website and they're choosing photos from a gallery in your website. Right. It, was a, it was a really nice experience from the customer point of view. Cool. And in Zenfolio, which I have experience with, you can um, make it to where they can only buy only buy prints or uh -huh. you can change it to where, you know, for a few dollars more you can buy the digital download or whatever. So, um, I think those three options are probably the best. I, I don't know if you can customize pass. I'm sure you can to where uh, they can't download, but they can order prints. But mm -hmm. I feel like you don't have quite as much control over uh, the print labs and all the different, you know, logistical things. You don't have yeah. quite as much control over that stuff with pass as you do with the other three. Okay. Next question is from Tim Gleason. He says, why does HDR processing often make images look like cartoons? Um, what is the best way to prevent that? So what do you got? Brent? <laughs> well, the reason it looks like cartoons is because when we're standing there looking at it at the scene, and we think, hey, I, I understand this is a bright, super bright highlight. This is a really dark shadow and I need to blend these together. Your eye is capable of discerning in the neighborhood of 30 stops difference of, of light values. When you're compressing that to you know, the highest quality camera can probably reproduce, what, about 12 stops maybe uh, of, of dynamic range. You have to compress that and uh, all, all those highlights and all those shadow areas and bring it into something that can be uh, shown on screen or in the print or what have you. And so if the software just doesn't know where to put those tonal values, that's what we call tone mapping, you often get these this ripple effect or this halo effect, and it just starts to look kind of sick. 
uh, sometimes. So you have to be really careful in your settings and what you do there. Uh, with Lightroom's HDR, built-in HDR, generally it does pretty good at keeping those halos at bay and, and, and not getting them to look so cartoonish. But, you know, if you look into some of these other uh, HDR programs, uh, Photomatix is the one I have the most uh, experience yeah. with. You can really overcook an image and it just looks sick experimenting if hdr is what you want to do experiment with the settings and try and just hold it back uh and not let it go so bad uh certainly there's other things you can do in photoshop like exposure blending and then um the luminosity masking that can really help it look super legit and not have that feel of cartoonishness i think the 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 thing that i'm always bringing up with people when i'm talking about exposure blending and why it comes away looking so much more natural is because when you're squishing something through either even Lightroom's HDR feature and you're, you, you're boosting the shadows and bringing down the highlights, what you're doing effectively is killing all of the natural contrast in the sky and you're killing yeah. all the natural contrast in your foreground or whatever it is. And so you're coming away with this really flat looking image. If you run it through like a photomatics or, or another HDR program, basically you're doing a very similar thing. You're maintaining contrast, but it's just in the wrong places, you know, right, and you're ending right. up with textures in very strange places. You know, you have this shot with a bright sky and a dark old truck. And when you end up with as much, uh, detail in the dark areas underneath the the fender you know in the dark pit that should be a dark pit (laughs) when you have texture in there you know you've gone too far you know so um exposure blending in photoshop with multiple frames what makes that look natural is the fact that the contrast is in the right places you know you end up with that gradient in the sky your highlights in the tips of the trees are brighter than the shadows on the, the shade side of the trees. All the highlights and all the shadows are in the right places and in the right amounts. What you're doing is you're just equaling out the difference between those dark shadows in your foreground and your bright highlights in the, in the sky. And so that, that would be my answer is the best way to deal with dynamic range is just to manually do it in Photoshop. And it's, very much worth learning. It's hey, there's definitely a learning curve and it's kind of an art in itself, but it's a very worthwhile art in my opinion. Right. The HDR images. I remember when, uh, when HDR was really popular, kind of in the, the early two thousands, you would see a lot of people at, at festivals and, and, and art fairs selling HDR images and they just became very, very popular. This, this oversaturated, overblown HDR look, um, I think the more natural look is is definitely what we're we're seeing now, and and the HDR uh, movement towards extremes has definitely mellowed out. I think th- I think that's what um, getting that micro contrast uh, between the separation of the values, so those tonal values yeah. have a, a softer roll off, and it, the the dynamic range doesn't seem so so sharp. Uh, th- that's what the cartoonish look is. It's it's either it's a it's a bright strong bright border next to a dark border, and that's why you have that. Very, very contrasty, bright value with a dark value, and that 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 makes us read it as fake. Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so if you can, if you can, yeah, that's why the, I think with luminosity masking, you see these roll offs that bring out values that will extend the dynamic range a little bit more naturalistically, mm-hmm. and then we can see some some more dynamic range uh, be stretched without it looking 
so cartoon. And by the way, that's a great word. That sounded like a Nick word right there. Naturalistically. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's a, a Bushism <laughs> or, or Nick Cageism. Uh, you just made up Love a word, it. sir. And that was an excellent word. Um, that's, that's my word of the day. Also, I will add one thing. Sometimes those HDR programs, they add a cool effect to a certain area. Like they're just sucking out detail in an area that no other method is able to bring out detail in. And it's a good thing. The problem is when your entire photo has just crazy amounts of detail, kind of getting back to the drawing the eye thing. If your entire photo is crazy looking, the eye just goes spastic when it looks at the photo. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Trey Ratcliffe has made famous is to do an HDR version of the photo and then only use the parts of that photo where it had a positive effect and just use layer masks to blend that into more natural looking versions of the photo. So for example, if you're taking a photo, I uh, keep envisioning this old truck with a sunset behind it. If you're, you're taking that shot and you love the effect that it has on the rest of the truck, do an HDR version and then use layer masks to bring in just the positive bits of that effect in the areas that you want it and then let the rest of it be that more natural look that way the eye will be drawn to the texture and it's not going to you know just be a sensory overload when somebody looks at your photo that i think right. that can be a more effective yep. way of going about it okay Absolutely. so in every episode we want to come at you with some doodads of the week brent what is your doodad this week well my doodad is something that i actually wish i had uh, not that I do have, because I mentioned before when I got plastered with ice on the, uh, on the waterfall, my camera also got plastered with nice. a minimum of an eighth of an inch of ice around the whole thing, lens, body, everything. And I didn't get a picture of it. I'm really kicking myself, but at the bottom of the lens, uh, the very front uh, of the lens, it actually had a frozen drip that was hanging off about three quarters of an inch. That's awesome. And I was just like, oh my God. I retired that camera for the rest of the day because I didn't want to, you know, if I were to open that, that, uh, that body up and as far as take the lens off and put a different lens on, you know, I'm going to get ice in the chamber. There's no way I'm going to do that. So a Zing design or something along those lines, a little neoprene case, sorry, I'm trying to blend two words myself, a little mm -hmm. neoprene case or some other type of thing that just covers your camera yep. when you're not, you have it slung over your shoulder and, you know, I got hit by that ice and I just hunkered down. Well, my camera was fully exposed and I was like, oh, thankfully it survived and it's all fine because the Canon 5D Mark IV is a fantastic camera and it's well weather sealed as as is the L lens I had on there. Uh, but anyway, it was still would have been nice to have uh, something on that camera to protect it when I wasn't shooting it. And it's a real quick and easy take it off, put it back on. I, I totally would have used it if I had it. Yep. Steven, what is your doodad this week? <laughs> uh, my doodad for the week is the Fuji Instax Share SP2. Um, this is a second generation. This is this is a photo printer. Um, now I had, you know, for a long time, I had, I had been on the fence about photo printers and there, there are so many different brands out there and, you know, the portable ones always seem to run out of juice. What I like about this, this is made by Fuji. So if you have one of the newer Fuji cameras that has Wi-Fi, you can print literally straight from the camera right to the printer. If you don't, but if you, if you shoot a different camera system that has any kind of transfer, um, you can go from your camera to your smartphone and then print from your smartphone. 
And what I like about this printer is it's that old style instant film. So uh, there, there are two types of instant printers. There are the types that actually print out little business size photos, and they're, they're pretty faithful. They're, they, they can be pretty good, but I like the texture of this instant uh, of this instant film. It, it really does bring that old Polaroid uh, feel to it. And if you're doing any kind of event work or if you're just doing uh, street photography, it's a fantastic way to uh, to give someone. Um, a, a photo of themselves. I mean, if you if you hand it over with your business card, it's a great way to drum up business. But a physical a physical photo is something that is such a luxury in today's day and age. Everyone has a, yeah. a a camera on their phone. They're used to digital pictures. But if you hand someone a physical photo, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of weight to that. There's a lot of gravity to that, and that's something that people really hold on to, and it means something. Uh, I mean, it's everything everything old is new again. Um, it means something to someone when they get a picture of themselves that you took of them uh, with your camera. There's there's a real connection there. So mm-hmm. it's a little on the pricier side. It's it's just under two hundred dollars. This should have been right before Christmas. It's a great Christmas splurge or something for for a lot of people. Two hundred dollars is a it's a lens or or you know some other great uh, accessory. But as far as experiencing uh, shooting and interacting with people, I really believe that being able to hand a photo to someone um, in their hand will change the way you interact with other people and will change the way you actually take photos. Awesome. Very cool. Okay. So this week, mine is the GoPro hero five black. Um, so I've been trying to up my vlogging game on my YouTube channel. I do lots of my little adventure photography outing vlogs. And one of the things that I was really excited about with this hero five is that I don't have to have a case for it anymore. It's really cool to just have a GoPro. It's already weatherproof. No need for cases and stuff. So uh, I've been using it. I really, really appreciate several of the features of it. I love the voice commands when it works (laughs) Um, because I can, I can say GoPro start recording and boom, it starts recording. GoPro take a burst and it'll take a burst of photos. GoPro stop recording. GoPro turn off and it just does it. And it's so cool. And that's really nice anytime when I'm not physically holding it and I don't have to sit there and fiddle with changing modes. I can just say, GoPro, take a photo and it'll automatically take a photo, even if it's in video mode. So wow, really, really liking the new GoPro. Hopefully it's not the last GoPro that's ever made. I'm a little <laughs> bit worried about the company GoPro, but this product <laughs> I really like. The downside is that some of the old accessories and stuff don't fit so well anymore because it's completely different, but really cool. I've really been liking mine and yeah. So that's my doodad this week. All right. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. We'll see you in another seven days. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.